Kimberly here. This is Macabish, cults, classics, and horrors. We're talking films, series, books, and life, and we're starting right now. Here's where I feel like if I were really good at giving interviews, I would invent a really interesting backstory for myself. But I feel like it's still kind of inspirational Mm -hmm. for some people in the sense that I, the path to becoming a best-selling author, it was, I do not have an English degree I never worked in publishing. I have no connections in publishing. I don't know any editors or agents. I didn't live in New York. All of the stuff I saw on TV as a kid that involved becoming an author, I didn't do any of that. Remember, when I first started writing, like just in a notebook for myself as a teenager, the -hmm. internet did not exist and had not been conceptualized. Like the concept of you type it in a box and it goes out to the world. That was not a thing. And as far as I knew would never be a thing. So the question people ask is like, well, growing up, did you, did you want to be an author? It's like, well, growing up, I was living in a town of 5,000 people with uh, three stoplights and two restaurants. And the only, like there are no bookstores. The only books I had available to me were the paperbacks I could get at the pharmacy and there was like a little, there's like one shop that sold like candy and stuff. And they had a little shelf of comic books and that kind of thing. And that was it. Mm-hmm. So everything I would love to say about how uh, I grew up in the classics or, you know, aspiring to to read the great authors or wanting to be H.P. Lovecraft. I didn't have access to H.P. Lovecraft. Maybe they had them at the library. But I didn't go to the library. That was something nerds did. Uh, So if for the kids out there who feel like their future is aimless or feel like uh, the job they would like to do doesn't exist, please remember, I graduated high school in 1993. When I entered the adult world, when I left my public education, the Internet still did not really exist. As in, in 1993, there was a few extremely, you know, high-tech tech nerds doing this thing called the internet but the world wide web as we know it now was still not a thing it's true so the the job that would let me that would come to define my life did not exist the technology did not exist so that's why i i try to tell the story as honestly as i can because there are kids out there who are 16 17 18 35 37 who who don't know what they're going to mm-hmm. do when they grow up but it's like, hey, it may be the thing you were built to do doesn't exist yet, it, you know, and it may it may come along. That's so like true. in my in my case, I started blogging in 1997, 98, something like that, when I got my very first dial up Internet connection. And it was before the word blog existed. That right. word, this it's not just before social media. It's not just before Instagram it was before you could do video online because the bandwidth wasn't there. So long before YouTube, before Facebook, no one knew the term social networking and no one knew the term blog, which is the thing that came before social networks. And so I started typing. It's like, Oh my gosh, 
this, these words that I'm, you can just type anything and people have to look at it like, right. <laughs> and it was like, wow. So all of these gatekeepy things that I thought were going to keep me from ever writing for an audience, because the idea of like how you get from small town to being the writers you see in the movies, like in the movie Misery, where he has he goes to like New York and he's in a New York apartment, like a penthouse, and he talks in person to his agent and goes to these cocktail parties, these launch parties in New York. Like, how do you get from rural Illinois to that? And the answer is you don't. There's no there's no pathway. So the idea of being a writer on that level, it was in this. I, I dreamed of it in the sense that little kids will dream of being an astronaut. Like those right. kids are not thinking in terms of, well, I can join the Air Force and become a test pilot and become an officer. They're, they just have this dream of being in space. Well, right. it's the same thing. There was no concept of, so I went to college and went into journalism because I thought, well, that will at least let me write things for people. But that industry was already dying by the time I graduated. But meanwhile, I was just writing stuff as an amateur online and slowly building an audience because I was extremely fortunate. As much as I thought of myself as being unfortunate for being born what seemed like a thousand miles away from the action, I got in on the ground floor of the internet. Mm -hmm. I was blogging in the late 90s when you know 60 or 70% of the population still didn't have their own connection at home, internet connection. Right. So in that sense, I was extremely lucky. So the the book that would eventually make me make my career as an author um, was a story that I posted, started posting in the early 2000s. And every year at Halloween, I post a little more of it. And it was just, I posted it for free. And it went back then, we would say it it went viral. It became, it, it started to get its own following, but it was just there on my blog. It was like, my blog was just, it, whatever I felt like writing, silly movie reviews, essays, whatever. That at Halloween, I would switch over and write this, write on this fiction story. And it gained a little bit of a following. But again, even that, even then, the idea of someone writing on the internet getting a book deal, that had never happened. Like okay. it literally had not happened yet. That whereas now, if you have like a successful Twitter account from that, you can get a book deal because all they care about is do you have an online presence to sell to sell books? Back then, there was still no pathway. There was like no respect for people writing online. Online, because why? Why should there be? You you might be ten years old for all they know. It was all anonymous. It was all just text. So why would they hand a book deal to somebody like me? Right. So I was I wasn't doing this like okay. I've got a strategy. I'm going to write this on the internet, and then I will do this and this and this, and then boom. I'll be a famous author and, and be able to do it full time. That thought never entered my head because again, that wasn't, that wasn't an existing career path. Mm -hmm. And then what happened was people would send me after about five years of this, I had a novel length story. And then as I went, it was great because the great thing about writing on the internet is you want to change something you've already written. You can just open up the CMS and go right in there and change it. So I could, I could write the payoff for something and then go back and drop it in foreshadowing. And if you read it now, it's like, oh, he's a genius. He set this all up in advance. It's like, <laughs> well, no, I actually came up with the other part. And I went and edited it back in because I, I've given away for free. What, what are you going to do? Complain? It's, you, it's, right. it's, it's mm -hmm. 
Um, so it was this living document. And then after, after it, I had a full novel link thing, even then, even then it's just like, okay, well, I guess I'll just keep, keep writing stuff. And, you know, I'll keep writing additional editions of it, but there still wasn't like, okay, this is my meal ticket. And so what happened was somewhere around 2005, 2006, people were sending me photos where they had printed out my book and put it in like a three ring binder so they could read it like a book. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, look, I made a book. Nice. So I was like, well, this is idiotic. So I went to cafe press at the time. Maybe they still do. They used to have a thing where you could upload a PDF and, and a cover image and you could sell print on demand. People could get a physical copy of your book that way. Right. Just riddled with typos, no formatting, but it was an actual physical copy people could hold in their hands. Um, and then I just sold it at cost because they were very expensive, which makes sense. They're having to print it. You know, it's like mm. making a meal from scratch every time the customer walks in. Like that's a very expensive way to do it, but it's also a miracle. I, I was so proud, but you couldn't like order it at Amazon or go to a bookstore and get it. You could only get it from ordering it from cafe press. But my thinking was, well, it's better than people trying to read it off a binder and having to print it out. You know, like the cost of the, the inkjet cartridges you're going to use. Is about the same <laughs> oh yeah. Um, and so sold a few hundred copies that way. And then a small like print on demand publisher called permuted press came along and they offered me, actually an advance of a few hundred dollars, which I thought was insane to do it as a proper, they would put a copy editor on it, get a a better cover on it. And then they would have an ISDN number. So it would actually be in on Amazon and libraries if bookstores wanted to order it. They could, you know, if they could order it. So that was a big step up, but it was still, there was none of the, the things you, you associate with a big publisher in terms of there being a publicity campaign or having relations with, you know, or like foreign rights or an audiobook, or having relations with the bookstore chains where you can get them to order 3000 copies of it. There was none of that, but it's still to, you know, me and my family and everybody else. It's like, Oh my gosh, I'm a published author. It's a miracle. So Amazing. It, it, this wound up on the shelves of some Barnes and Noble stores and people were showing me pictures like, Oh, they've got a copy of your book for some reason. And I sold <laughs> like, I think about 3000 copies that way, which meant I made, you know, you're only making like 10% of the cover price. So I, I don't know. I I made several hundred dollars off of it, which again, I thought that was the most people that would ever read a book I had written. It's, and I, I thought that was a miraculous number considering the disadvantages it had, not knowing that when you go into a Barnes and Noble, almost all of those books on the shelf you see only sold a few thousand copies. Right. Like, like I didn't realize that's how publishing worked. I still thought, oh, this is a, a guerrilla campaign. And then by extreme long odds, so so like the sales of that started to taper off to where I was selling like four or five copies a week. I thought, well, okay, that that's the end of that. Like I've I've had my moment in the sun as an author. I will go back to my life as as a blogger. Again, my job during the day at this point, I was working in a cubicle at an insurance company doing data entry. I, mm-hmm. I wasn't it wasn't copywriting, it wasn't anything creative. It was a, a job I got through a temp agency and then they hired me on. I think I was making like $9.50 an hour. So this whole time, like my day, I'm just a guy who bounces around to office jobs, going through temp work. 
I had gotten a journalism degree. I'd worked in journalism for about a year and a half at a local TV station and dropped out of it. And I, I hated it. And also I was very bad at it. Mm. So the idea of, of still, it was just at this point, I'm in my early thirties, you know, I was born in 1975. So it's like, okay, I had my fun little thing where I, like, I'm still blogging in my spare time, making no money off of it. Because again, it, writing on the internet has just never been profitable under any model. Um, and it's like, I've had my brief moment where I can tell people, oh, you know, actually I wrote a book, you know, that, that came out. It's actually on some shelves. So like, oh yeah, what's it called? And it'd be my fun little anecdote I can tell, but sales have dropped off. Nobody cares about it. I'm not making any money off my website. And it's like, I'm 31 years old or 30 years old at this point. I have to leave this writing stuff behind and, and go train for some sort of a real job. And so I started, like I took classes at a local community college and databases and Microsoft access and tried to learn some basic programming, trying to see if I had any kind of an aptitude for that kind of thing. Cause it was obvious at that point, that's what the future was learning how to do networking, you know, all, all of that stuff. They were constantly hiring in that, but it was obvious the writing thing hadn't, hadn't worked out. In 2007, I get an email from uh, Don Coscarelli, who was a horror mm. writer, producer, director. He made, made the Phantasm movies. Mm -hmm. He had just made Bubba Hotep, which was a horror buddy comedy, asking if he could, like, did I have an agent? He wanted to get the film rights to this book I'd written, John Dies at the End, that he had somehow, somehow against incredible long odds, gotten a copy of. Because again, only a few thousand copies exist uh, that one of the people who would have it would be someone in the, in the, in who had the power to get a film made was ludicrous. I didn't answer the email. I thought it was a, like a, a fishing. Oh. <laughs> so he, he persisted in emailing me and eventually dug up a, a phone number at some point and asked if he could talk to me on the phone and says, I want to, I want to buy the rights to this. Um, and I want, you know, I want to make it. It's like, it's like right in my wheelhouse. It's, it's cause it, it, you know, the tone's very similar to Bubba Hotep. It's, it's similar to what he does. It's got like a mind blowing twist that you can put in there. Um, and we uh, talked about it and I, again, at the time I had no agent. I, I had to call around, like I opened, went on the internet and tried to Google like names of attorneys that had done entertainment law or or book contracts or anything i i certainly wasn't going to ask to get a literary agent because it's like i'm not i'm not a writer i i work at an insurance company this is i just the thing i said to the lawyer i left it on his voicemail i was like i i've already have a deal getting done i just need you to look over the paperwork and make sure that it's all boilerplate that i'm not accidentally giving away any rights that you wouldn't expect right. um so went back and forth on that it took a few months um, people always ask, well, how much, how much did he pay for the rights? And it's like, do you understand how irrelevant that is? Right. Because if he had called me and said, Hey, I'm going to make this into an, into a movie. The only thing is I need you to pay me $5,000 to help get it made. <laughs> I would have went out and borrowed the money because it, it, you've won the lottery as a writer when a book gets turned into a movie. You just have. Right. As I was about to find out. Because again, it's not that, it's not the way 
lots of writers have sold the rights and film and TV rights to stories. But the typical thing that happens is it goes into a pile of scripts and story ideas of properties and stuff will sit for 20 years before maybe somebody will try to make a show out of it. And then maybe that pilot doesn't get picked up or they'll try to make a movie and then it dies in development. Here was someone, someone saying, no, this is going to be my next project. Cause he, he had originally been doing a sequel to Bubba Hotep. I think there were some issues, but like, like actor availability, that kind of thing. He's like, mm-hmm. well, I want to do this. It's not that I want to acquire the rights and just have it among the pile of stuff on my desk. I want to make it. So Amazing. we got that done. And then about three weeks later, I get a call from crack.com, a comedy website startup offering me a job as a writer editor there working from home making twice what I was making at my office job. So at the moment I had given up on writing, there was a span. It was a three week span where the the film rights to John Dice at the end got sold. And then I got a call saying, or an email saying, Hey, we, we want you to come interview for this editor spot at this new um, comedy website we're starting. And that was that, like I've been a full-time writer ever since. And prior to that point, I had never been, published in any capacity. I had never sold a piece of like an article to a magazine. Again, I had never, like I had attempted to sell a book idea to an agent that it went nowhere. There was like one brief conversation that it was dismissed. I had never uh, done anything. I'd never, to this day, I've never written a query letter. I actually don't know what that is. I've never had to shop for agents or pitch to editors. I've never pitched a book before. Because once I sold the film rights, I immediately got con- like the news went out in the trades and then immediately got contacted by a division of Macmillan at St. Martin's Press, Division Macmillan, one of the what three publishers that are that still exist, mm-hmm. uh, saying we want to pick up the rights to John Dice Dan or do it as a do it in a hardcover, full blown hardcover run. St. Martin's had to buy the rights from the book from permuted press and then they separately like looped me in on the deal like they paid both of us kind of an unusual situation but it was an unusual path to publication where i went from self-publishing to print on demand to now a hardcover full hardcover book deal with one of the mega publishers um but we worked it out so that they because they wanted to keep me in the loop because they wanted to do, do another round of editing and write a new afterward and, and basically have me involved to write future books So the book gets released in hardcover in 2009. It earned back its advance in seven days um, and became an instant hit. At the time I was writing a sequel, the title would be, This Book is Full of Spiders. Seriously, dude, don't touch it. (laughs) Um, At the time, that book would come out right around when the film was getting done. Because in the meantime, the film would wind up coming out in 2012. So it was a five-year process. And again, that's the way it works in film. You just don't, like he acquired the rights and then I just heard nothing for two years. Mm-hmm. And then he, I hear out of the blue and I assumed, oh, well, they've, they've dropped it or whatever. Because again, I have enough friends who are writers to know that the phrase they use is that in Hollywood, nothing gets made. You mm-hmm. get tons of meetings, tons of people saying yes, but no shows ever get picked up. No movie, like for every one thing that actually winds up on your screen, 10,000 projects got started and died. So right. I thought, oh, well, he's moved on to make something else or some other project came along or or maybe uh, 
that maybe Bruce Campbell got freed up and they wanted to do another, another thing together, whatever. And I had accepted it. And then he, he contacts me and says, Hey, we've got Paul Giamatti on board as a producer. We got a cast together. Like we're doing, we're now, we're like reading, doing readings for the, the roles of John and Dave. We want to cast unknowns, blah, blah, blah. And like they're picking out locations so like, Oh, this is, Oh, this is happening. So the way it it happened was the film debuted at Sundance in January 2012. Uh, They had me come out there. I flew out there, did publicity with the cast, um, did like an onstage Q&A at the screening. They they insisted on bringing me along to all that stuff. Um, And then the second book came out right at the height of the publicity around the film. And this book is full of spiders. It's the one that made the New York Times bestseller list. Oh, perfect. And then that was that. So I continued to work at Cranked until uh, 2020. It's I quit right before the pandemic and I'm writing books full time now. Um, but I that's how many years I put in before being able to do it as my only as my only source of, of income. It's is I so I worked at Cranked for 13 years. But if you go back and do the math from when I started blogging, 1997, 98 till 2020, I basically wrote as a side job for, uh, you know, 20, I've already, I can't do the math, 22 years. <laughs> That's how much time I put in writing and the, the amount of unpaid work I did just for exposure, I guess you would say these days it's thousands of pieces. And that's how much free work I had to pour into the system before I would be allowed to do it the way I do it now, where I write a novel and get paid well and can pay a mortgage with it and et cetera. It's amazing. But the, so the book I'm, I'm promoting here is the fourth book in that John Dice Dan series, but it's, they're not serialized. You can jump in anywhere. They're episodic. Mm-hmm. So if there are any listeners, I know that if somebody tell, turns you on to like a fantasy series and they're like, Oh yeah, there's 26 books for you to catch up on. <laughs> That's, that's a lot to ask. I, in the here, in this case, I'd be asking you to read three books. You you can come in on book four. It's it's fine. It, 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 you it, you will be confused, but reading the other books will not lessen your confusion. And in fact, mm-hmm. make probably would make it worse. <laughs> that's the nature. You'll see what I mean when you read them. That's the nature of the stories. The, the main characters at no point do they actually know what's going on. That's part of the the charm. Well, that's what I love about the serialized type of books is that uh, you can just jump in on the newest popular one that everybody's talking about and then you can go back and like still like keep up and everything right yeah and and again there you do lose some things like if somebody reads book four and they go back and they're like i'm going to start with book one and they notice there's a beloved character that was not in book four maybe don't get too attached to that character. <laughs> right. <laughs> they, right? They, they do still occur in linear time. And so you'll notice, you know, there's a character missing from this the, or vice versa. Like, well, they obviously were introduced later, but it's never, it's not a, it's not a, a song of ice and fire situation where we end on a cliffhanger. And then for all, you know, I'll, I'll just never write the next one. It's not <laughs> each, each book is a beginning, middle and end of its own. It's episodic. It's uh yeah, on purpose. I, I want people to be able to jump in anywhere. And then so that you hopefully, you know, you will be thrilled at the prospect of reading the first three, but I don't want it to be a requirement, mainly because I would find that so stressful. Right. The thought of the thought of 
sending a book out into the world, not knowing how I'm going to resolve the stuff I just set up. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not criticizing that type of writing. I could not, I can't even fathom writing something like George R. R. Martin has done or any of the great fantasy authors. I can't imagine it. It, it doesn't, it, for me, each one has to wrap itself up completely in order for me to be at ease. Otherwise I would just worry myself to death. Like, well, what if, what if I don't resolve this in a satisfactory manner? You know, like there's there, especially if you're going years between editions and the Mm -hmm. fans are just, you have these rabid fans discussing among themselves, speculating about what's going to happen. I think it would just tear myself apart. (laughs) Like horror fans do, because that's all Mm -hmm. we do. We just, we're chomping at the bit. And then if the next one comes out and it has nothing to do with the last one, like if we're not told riots in the streets, the internet streets <laughs> riots it would be ridiculous because that that's what we do because we get excited about it yeah, but and that's that's a way fans express their love for something like right. when people get mad they get so angry about how the game of thrones tv show ended like i obviously i'm not supporting the, not this the idiots the ones who like sent death threats and stuff to the film runner the, the showrunners i'm not supporting that i'm saying that the people who go over the top and how mad they are that it wasn't adapted properly it's like well it's because they love it right they're up they're disappointed because they love it they're not they're not just being jerks they the worst thing that could happen is if they just didn't watch or they didn't care it's like i would rather have people care in a way that's abrasive or weird than to to just be ignored because the vast 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 majority of things that have ever been created artistically were just ignored like that's that's the most common fate if people are talking about you good or bad Again, unless they're sending death threats to your house, that's a whole separate thing. That that's <laughs> right. the crazies doing that. But if they're like people, you know, posting memes about how bad the last book was, I will take that over being ignored any day of the week. Right, that makes sense. I don't know how you're just writing book after book after book like craziest stories. I love them, <laughs> but I'm going to tell you something. When you left Cracked, I was inconsolable because every day I would wake up turn on the computer, go to Cracked. And I was like, what am I going to do with my mornings while I get re-? like inconsolable for years, y- year, decades? <laughs> that was the first thing I did. Well, let's see what he's going to write today. That's how I started my day. And then it's like, oh, well, I'll just start reading his books. And it was one book after another. You don't know. <laughs> the level of joy. I just, I read them and then I just start all over again. My entire adult life. Apparently, I've been following you around the internet. I can honestly say one of the things that has been a constant in my adult life is reading what you write. My whole adult life. That Yeah, that means so much to me. It, it, and this is what, this is why I, when people ask, when people are most curious about like the money side of things or how much something sold or whatever. And it's like, because I, I keep talking about how I wrote so much of it for free over the years, mm-hmm. you know, cause again, when it was being posted on the internet, it wasn't for, I wasn't charging for it. It was just out there and people, it, it, people would talk like you're throwing your effort into the void. And it's like, no, I, I hear from these fans. Like I, like I hear from people who, who wanted to read something like this and, but didn't know it until they saw it. 
Right. It's like it means something to people. You know, we had a message board at, at my old blog that, and then it continued when I got hired at Crank. We brought it over. I think in the time that message board has been around, something like 12 different married couples met each other on those boards and got married. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's like it means something. And I think that's what I can tell a story of what happened at, at Crank because it is very, it's exactly like the nature of the internet as it is now versus. It, as it was in the blog era when people used to follow like good writing, you know, long form writing and, and people would actually put. And I think these days, a lot of that is migrated to YouTube because there's some wonderful like film essayists on YouTube and they'll put out these great hour long loving reviews going into detail about film. I think that's kind of where what the people who would have been star bloggers back in the early 2000s now, they're YouTubers that's all fine. It's just that I got hired at cranked and the people who don't had never went to crack.com. Um, it was a website because it used to be a humor magazine that started in the 1950s. It was mm -hmm. a mad magazine ripoff. Yeah. Right. It's like the, these corny parody stuff. And so what had happened was that magazine folded in the mid two thousands and then somebody bought it and tried to resurrect it as like a more modern like a glossy Maxim type magazine, but it's still called Cracked. And it just didn't work because Cracked, the magazine was aimed at like 12 year old kids. And they were trying to, you know, to aim it at a more lucrative type of magazine customer, right? Like somebody who actually buys things. Right. And it, it only, it folded after like four or five issues. So what happened was the domain for the website, part of the operation just was kind of abandoned and a company, a, a tech startup came along and bought it because they were buying just hundreds of domains that were that had existing traffic. So like expired brands and stuff, and then trying to find something they could put there. So they bought crack.com, the domain of the old magazine. And a couple of the members of the writing staff of the magazine stayed on board to try to write some sort of a, a website. And then they need they were allowed to hire an assistant editor. And that's where they found me purely because I happened to be friends with one of the guys who was working there. Um, so the, I, I was brought on at the time. It was two employees and one intern. And there was no office. It, like we were just working from home because this giant company was just, it's like we need something to put at that domain. So we went about trying to create this brand of comedy that wasn't like as much as possible it wasn't like bro type like babe of the day slideshow it was because we felt like sites like college humor kind of leaned into that stuff a little bit it was like aimed specifically at males and kind of like you know it was a specific style of comedy and we wanted it to be if possible a little bit smarter um kind of it, it, a little bit less bitter if possible and it just kept growing growing and growing so that by the time um, this they would wind up selling cracked in 2016. At that point, we had 43 full-time employees, and the site sold for 38 million dollars. Wow! Um, it's and we had at that point a Facebook page with like four million fans, and a YouTube channel with like two million fans, and a, a podcast that was listened to by like I think 150,000 listeners every episode. Like we had built it into this multi multimedia brand up from this thing where it was me and one other guy and an intern, um, 
just trying to generate content for this domain. And we just kept growing, growing the traffic and getting more and more attention from the parent company. And they kept throwing more staff at it and doing it. We felt like doing it right with trying to do smart comedy. It wasn't uh, punching down at people. It wasn't hateful. It wasn't you know, appealing to the worst in people. It wasn't clickbait. We weren't tricking people into clicking. We weren't doing any of the stuff that you hate about the internet. Now, it, it kind of wasn't like that in 2011, 2012. That stuff where the internet would be totally taken over by it just kind of generated junk where it's just, you're just mm -hmm. carpet bombing the internet with, and, and again, people who work at a site like Screen Rant, I'm not mad at them. They're just doing a job. But that style of, you're just trying to to game to get the to the top of the Google results. Like you're just mashing the keyboard to get something to that will always hit on Google. It wasn't like that back then. You actually grew a following from people bookmarking the site and doing what you did, coming back every day because they wanted to come there. Right. But the internet, and this is so strange, and I, I, so few people talk about this. But the internet went from being an entirely PC based thing that people viewed on a PC to being about 75 or 80% a thing that people viewed on their phone mm. overnight. Mm. You know, like this happened over, over the period of a couple of years. Right. And mobile audiences simply behaved differently. And you saw, started to see long form type essay stuff. People with a phone really preferred to get that in the form of a podcast. Yeah. Which right. makes sense because you can listen to it in your car. Whereas if you try to read an article while driving in your car, the cops get mad. <laughs> um, you can listen on the treadmill. You can listen to it while you're, you can do the dishes in the kitchen and put your earbuds in and listen to, listen to it that way. So if someone wants a deep dive, a funny deep dive into the making of this movie or the crazy story behind this historical figure, these days are going to get it from a podcast. It just is just convenient. Right. And then the other weird thing was in the PC era People would do what you probably did. They would bookmark, bookmark a site. And then every morning they would have a list of things they had bookmarked. Right. In the mobile era, people don't bookmark. Like you may do it. People don't bookmark websites. It's just not the way they do it because there's a stupid thing where every website wants their own app. And so your phone is filled with 37. Oh, I've got an app just for USA Today. I've got an app just for... And so what people wanted was one thing they could tap on their phone they would have all their websites on it. So for a lot of people, that's Reddit. Right. They, they don't they don't go browsing all the newspapers. They go to Reddit and see what people are talking about. Or they go to Twitter and see what people are talking about. That's how they keep up with stuff. And at the time in 2012, 13, 14, it was Facebook. Mm. And this was where the the first tremors of doom were coming because Two companies were totally taking over the internet, Facebook and Google. All traffic were started to be routed through those two companies. All ad dollars, they refer to this as an internet advertising duopoly. All ad dollars were running through those two companies. Right. And it got to the point to where Google could tweak an algorithm and your article that was getting you a million views a month would flip to zero because they dropped it off the front page because people don't go that deep into Google results. Right. Right. So if you'd had an article that, that SEO'd really well, and they just made one changed one character deep in their code, you would just watch the traffic 
drop to zero just like that. So everything I knew about being a creator where you're trying to make people happy mm-hmm. and, and make them come look at the thing you wrote was now it's like, no, it's an algorithm now. So Facebook, all traffic on the, like our, I still told you we had like 4 million fans on Facebook at one point. That's where everybody was getting their cracked articles because they would tap the big blue F on their phone. And if they had friended cracked at one time, that meant every time we updated, we would post a link on Facebook and they would see it in their feed. Right. Well, Facebook got tired of that because those people were seeing our link, clicking it and going to crack. And those people were not on Facebook anymore. Uh-huh. And then oh, they were yeah. looking at our ads and our, we were making money and Facebook's like, no, we want those people to stay on Facebook. So right. what they did was they flipped a switch and said, no one, none of those 4 million fans will see these links unless you pay us. And the amount you have to pay us is more than what you will make from the traffic. Right. And at that point, print, print internet was dead. This is why today, if you try to Google a term, your first five results will be paywalls or they'll be junk. Like, like you'll get a great article in the Atlantic or in Washington Post and, and New York Times, just paywall, paywall, paywall. And then you'll right. get some, some spam site where they've just mashed the keyboard for, for five paragraphs to get to build up the image. It's like, it's like that thing when you're looking for the release date of a movie and you'll type release date for whatever, uh, nope, part two, the next, and Jordan Peele's nope two. And you'll get the first result will be like screen rant, nope two, release date, information, what we know so far. And when you go there, it's just gibberish. And right. at the very, very, very final line, it'll say, there's been no release date or discussion of a, of a note too, but it doesn't matter. They already got your time on site. They got you to look at all those ad units. That is where writing on the internet, like if you want a job writing on the internet, it's that. Right. It, it, by, by choice, it's either that or else the outlet goes broke or, or it's three, three or four people with a Patreon, which is where I try to support as many of those things uh-huh. as I can, because that's what's left of being able to make unique, stuff for yourself that's fascinating i haven't heard a lot of that stuff (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's interesting to learn but yeah Yeah. i don't know if if the two of you went to cracked much but jason would make these listicles there was this one six harsh truths that will make you a better person he released that every year january 1st i believe the first year was uh, 2012 he re-released it every year and i the comment section, you would have people who are like, oh, I love this. It'll be one person. I love this. This is great. I needed to read this. The next 30 would be like, who the fuck is this guy? Who does he think he is? Talking? It was so polar. It was unbelievable. But that article, that year, I read that article every single day. Things like that, that we need mm-hmm. to hear. The comment section was always insane they would you they would change your perspective just enough so if you were floundering you could actually like make a decision jason man he's one of those people you knew <laughs> if you saw taylor wong at the top of that cracked page you knew the comment section was going to be on fire and you knew that article was going to be amazing i didn't read the comments either but th- that's see i never wanted i wanted like the articles to live as their own thing mm-hmm. because there's something with the internet where 
if you do like I, if, if, if I sound kind of tired or low energy or whatever, it's because I joined TikTok like three weeks ago and I, it has drained all of the remaining youthful energy from, from my soul. I understand. Um, so, because ultimately there you want to be able to go on and deliver some sort of a message or some sort of a smart observation. And, and if you guys, if you weren't going to crack, the whole issue was that at the time there were tons of websites, and magazines doing lists, but like Buzzfeed would do 25 uh, gifts of cats getting in trouble. Right. So the list were, it was always considered to be junk content. They're like slideshows, you know, right. 25, you know, epic fails at construction sites. So we were doing lists where each list item was building to a single point. And you and we would it, we were tricking people into reading 3,000 words on psychology. Or we had a guy who was a historian. He, he, he was a scholar and loved to do these history deep dives. And it was like six myths about the Civil War. Right. And again, the comments would be enraged. But the whole point was that it wasn't just... You know, and then we, and then there was fun stuff too. So there was like the six dumbest Batman villains, things like that. But at each time, we would require <laughs> them at the pitch stage to make some kind of a smart point. That was the whole deal with Cracked. It's like this is for an, an educated audience or for people who just get a, they enjoy, you know, doing a, a deeper dive into things, which at the time was rare. Now I think that's, that's all over the place. Right. But these days, my whole thing in writing under a pseudonym was I I completely didn't want anyone to associate the person with the work because it's like it's not about me. And these days, if you gosh, especially if it's women on TikTok and it's a woman there and she's trying to express something hurtful that happened or that happened to her. She's having to put her face out there, her home out there, and the comments will be going into her appearance, her hair, if they don't like her hair. They're always judging, especially, gosh, with women authors. I swear to God, TikTok wants to push traffic toward young, conventionally attractive white women authors which is not their fault, but like they're, they're trying to write the best book they can, but then their comments are like a commenting on how pretty they are. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, it's clear this algorithm. If you're a woman, you have to look a certain way. Whereas I can just look like me and nobody cares. But at the same time, it has changed where one time when I came into the internet, you would, everyone is writing anonymously. Like if someone put a real name on their post, it was just assumed it was like a fake name from a movie or something. Right. So like I used the name David Wong. David Wong was a character in a screenplay I wrote in high school. And he was a white guy who had used the, the, the name David Wong as an alias. And the joke in the, the screenplay was it just made it obvious it was an alias. Like it was obvious mm. it wasn't his name, but he did it because he figured that mathematically there's so many people with that surname on earth that it would make him very hard to find. And it had the opposite effect. The character was an idiot. So when I started posting on message boards <laughs> in 1998, I used the name David Wong as a, here's how insufferable I was. It was a pop culture reference that only I would get. <laughs> it, was, it was referring to a character in a screenplay that had no one else had read except for me and my friends. It was like four people on earth who know what this is. So it was, but that's the way it worked. And I thought, well, this will, I didn't want people to care about me i wanted them to care about the article because otherwise here's what happens if you these days if you go out on youtube you go out whatever 
and you take some strong stance on something, they won't attack the stance you took. They will examine mm-hmm. your video and they talk about, well, you know, you, you're a feminist because you, you know, because you're ugly. Because no man, like, you're, you're mad at men because no man would ever want you. Or it's like, and so they will examine the home they're living in. They'll look at the background to see what their bedroom looks like. They're like, well, what are you living in a trailer? It's like, what, what do you, why should I listen to you? You're telling me how to live my life and you're living in, you know, because at the time I wrote that article that, that you say, you know, like, change the way you think. I was right. living in a tiny house that we bought for. $31,000 in mm-hmm. rural Illinois. Like I, you know, I was driving a 1994 Ford Ranger that had been gifted to me because I couldn't afford to buy a car of my own. It would have been very easy to say, you know, you can't even afford to, to get your teeth fixed at the dentist. You're going to tell me how to live my life. And that's the way it, I feel like it is now because on these platforms, it's not like it was in the nineties where just your ideas can live separately from you. Now you and your face and your voice have to be out there. And it just, it lets people attack you as a person. And I I will admit, I miss when I could just put the work out there under a fake name. And like, I didn't try to create a persona for myself. The entire, like, there was no point where I was claiming to be this person. It was always, this is a pseudonym. This is a username. This is my handle on the message boards. And I didn't talk about myself. People didn't know if I was married. They didn't know where I lived. I didn't put that stuff out there because again, this was before social media. This was back in an era when it was weird if you did that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the the people who like live streamed their entire lives, there's a few famous examples. Um, And they they became famous for doing it because like, what a weird thing to do, to take a camera to a party you're going to and actually filming it and putting it up on the internet. What a weird, like the Truman Show was about this. It's like this movie, but can you imagine a future where we watch each other's lives over some sort of a screen? Like weird. You have to be such a strange narcissist to think other people care about your birthday party or what you're having for breakfast. And what was totally unthinkable in in 2002, I'm hearing a mechanical voice say hello. Yeah. Sorry, that was my text message notification. I thought I turned it off. <laughs> I, thought, I thought my headphones were haunted. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so what, what is common the way everyone lives now was considered wild eccentric behavior back then. So now I mentioned... Like I, you know who I am because I joined social media and it, you know, it, you cannot contact me and anyone who wants to find me in real life. They could, it would not be difficult for them to show up in my house if they wanted to. I know this because it has happened before. Oh. Strangers have showed up at my front door wanting oh, wow. to, oh to meet David Wong. Um, because now, it, you know, I've joined TikTok out of necessity because if you are an author, you need to be on TikTok. If there are any aspiring authors listening to me, I'm telling you, you need to be on TikTok. That's where the people are. That's right. and that and if you say, well, yeah, but I'm not, I'm not physically attractive. I don't have like a compelling personality. I get it. I don't know what to tell you. I I, I hate that. This is the way it works now. But if it feels to you like the book deals are going to young, very attractive people, there's a reason for that. And it's not that the publisher is saying, attach a headshot to your 
manuscript so you'll see how pretty you are is that they do want to know what your social media platform looks like because that's how the book will get sold is right. on social media and these days if you have a social media platform it means there is something compelling about your real life personality and that is hard for me to swallow because if i i feel like i'm back in high school because i was not a popular kid shockingly as right. you like if, if you observe my my amazing conversational skills that when you ask me a question <laughs> i talk for the next 25 <laughs> minutes uninterrupted <laughs> that did not make me popular as as a teenager in rural illinois believe it or not i was not the homecoming king i was not any of that so to find myself at age 47 and it's high school rules again, that it all comes down to how popular you are, like how charismatic you are and how many friends you have and how many people you know in the industry and how funny you can be or how compelling you can be on camera. All of that stuff, I had to train myself because you're sitting there watching an algorithm and trying to see watch time and stuff like that and, and sitting there thinking, well, Ernest Hemingway never had to do this. True. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, the rebuttal to that would be the reason you think of Ernest Hemingway as this tough, hunting, hard drinking badass is because he cultivated that image. True. Yeah. And maybe he was just as conscious of it as, you know, you look at a picture of Mark Twain, like that hair, that suit, all that stuff that was cultivated for his public appearances. He invented mm -hmm. that appearance for himself. Yeah, the three of us, we we don't we don't show our faces. Well, Carlos does a little bit, but his face is always different. But we don't <laughs> we don't either. And you know, people tell me all the time, well, you know, if you you know you you get in front of the camera, you'll probably have a bigger following. But you know, I know that get more listeners to the podcast because it's like okay, then her voice, I'll settle for her voice because <laughs> I just I won't do it because it's just gotten crazy. And it's and, so it's such an unhealthy dynamic because what they want from you is something you can't you can't give them. Right. Like you're not going to be friends. It's not. It's not. It not. It's hard because you're you work really hard to make something or to put a product out there. It's like no, I want to know about you. I want to know what you eat. I want to know what your <laughs> exercise routine is. I want to know what your wife's name is. I want to know right. what car you drive. It's like why. What are you missing from your life? Uh, you wouldn't like me if we, nobody does. You wouldn't <laughs> like me if you knew me in real life. Mm -hmm. It's it's like you think you're meeting a, one of the cool kids. People in real life meet me all the time. They don't want to talk to me a second time. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not fun. I, I'm not fun in groups. I get nervous at parties. I don't know what you're supposed to do. Yeah. I don't drink alcohol, but it's because it, for a bunch of reasons. So I, I don't like being around drunk people. I get a lot of work done because I don't spend any time with friends, but there's, it's so strange because there's all these people that think they want to be my friend and every, I God, I can't imagine being a woman. It's so different for me. Like for me, it's a minor annoyance. Right. When I see the comments on any, any woman, any woman, it's, she can't win. Because no. if she's if she's naturally pretty, then the comments are entirely about, oh, no one's watching this for your pottery. They're watching it because you're hot. Right. If she's just a normal looking person like me, you know, the average American is overweight. The average American is a 
doesn't look like the people on TV. That's just, you know, that's right. that's what the real world looks like. If she looks like a normal person you run into at the grocery store, then all the comments are about how hideous and ugly she is. And 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 they, they don't the videos don't get engagement because if you're a woman, then that has to be part of it. Your 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 pretty face has to be part of the package. And it's like that's nuts. Yeah. That's nuts is. when you're talking about someone. Uh, you know, who is on there to show off their art or their writing or their criticism or anything. And it's just so all the comments are just begging to have some sort of a relationship. It, it's like, well, I, why don't we talk just you and me? It's like, for what? Right. This, you live in, you know, you live in Japan or you live in London. This person lives in Oklahoma. What, what do you think you're going to, what do you think you're going to have? Like, even if you exchange pictures, what do you think? What do you think you're going to get out of that? It's go find somebody in real life. Go go meet somebody at church or or somewhere out in the world. This won't make you happy. It it, it won't. Right. I, I don't have I don't have time to give you. And I'm not, you know, if you want to talk to me and you think you're getting like another book out of me that way, like it's like mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying like like they see it as like additional content they're getting because you get to talk directly to the author, ask him questions about the book. It's like, no, it's all in the book. If right. anything I tell you, typing it in an email or, or in chat or on Discord or in one of the 800 channels people have to talk to me on Twitter DMs, TikTok DMs, mm-hmm. Instagram DMs, I'm on all the platforms, Goodreads, private messages, any of, the, any of those channels, me discussing the book with you is going to be far less interesting than anything I put into the book because the book took me two years to write. Right. It's the result of hundreds and hundreds of hours of effort and editing and changes and, and crafting this thing. And then you want to message me like, well, what did you, what did you at the ending, what, what did she mean by that? And it's like, if I just conversationally tell you that in a Twitter DM, what experience do you think you're going to, you're going to get out of it? It's going to be disappointing. It's not going to be like this well-crafted thing because I don't, my Twitter DMs are not of the same quality of writing <laughs> as well, the books that I'm making you pay thirty bucks for. Well, I could <laughs> we could tell you because this part of the reason why we do this podcast because it's an extension of the story. Like we like to watch the, watch the movies, read the books, and if I can get the author here, the filmmaker here, it's a continuation. It's an extension of the story. Like the amount of joy we get from doing this, even though it's very casual and we know we're not, you know, we're not real friends and we're not a part of your life. It's an extension of the story. And it, it's like, and we're also collectors. So it's also part of the collection. It's part of the, that's what it is. Yeah. And I, I get that because I have, I have the same impulse. Like when I, I, one thing I miss about media is DVD extras, commentary tracks. I miss that movies don't come with commentary tracks because I love to hear, especially a really good one where they've got like the star and the director and the writer, all three of them. I remember the commentary track for like Fight Club was great, Seven was great. And because you see them out of character and then Mm -hmm. you get an insight into the craft of it. Right. That's why when I do these appearances, I try really, really hard not to like tease people with my lifestyle. <laughs> like, like, yeah, I'm calling in from my, from my jet ski, uh, <laughs> but, but rather to try to get into the process. Cause I want to inspire people to make things 
even if they don't get paid for it? Because that's the big thing with writing is that the question I get a lot of, and I think I'm sure it's the same question that directors get and everybody, YouTubers get. It's like, well, how do you, how do you get to where you're making money off this? And I, I have to, to tell them, if you want to write, if you love writing, if you get something out of it, the key is to put the idea of ever making money off of it out of your mind. Because again, I didn't get started that way. I, I did not sit down and say, well, there's a lot of money in you know, horror comedy. Because there's not. There wasn't at the time. There's no market for that. I, I sat down and wrote it because I had this story in my head and I wanted to share it with people. And the the joy of making a thing, whether it's a book, whether it's a video, whether it's a poem, whether it's a birdhouse that you built. Right. Or, or, or a garden in your lawn, the joy of making it should be its own thing. Right. And the joy of taking these characters in your head and letting them live and breathe and bring their story to a satisfactory conclusion or whatever. And if other people enjoy it, that is a treasure. But also, if your entire worth you put on it is in other people paying to see it or giving you the right compliments or whatever, that ultimately will leave you hollow because you can't control that part. It's true. All you can control is the thing, how good the thing is and how good you made it. And so when I'm on here, like I tried to, to reemphasize how, how long I wrote without getting anything out of it in terms of a paycheck. Um, and that's how I got here. Cause like if I had started out from the beginning, like I'm going to write the most commercial commercially successful thing I can what I would have produced would have been terrible. Right. Whereas when I wrote it thinking, okay, maybe a hundred of my online friends will see this and this will make them laugh. I accidentally wrote something that made me successful because I wrote it with total abandon. Right. It's like, well, who cares what happens? It's like, I, I have nothing at stake. Um, so yeah, th that's the thing. And again, I'm not... I, I don't want to make my life sound hard, like because I've, I'm having to do a bunch of, uh, of like interviews and stuff. It's just that I never wanted, I never wanted like my personality to be the selling point because it's like, well, why? Why would anyone? Why would anyone care about about you? Well, because you're a regular person, right? A regular person from a small town, and something amazing happened, and that's like the dream everybody kind of hopes happens to them right and it's just it's an amazing thing to watch and it's usually that's people's story but they don't tell you the real story how they came from money and how the you know they know somebody in the industry who put in a good word and, and there you go they leave all that part out and they make it seem like oh they just worked really hard and because they worked really hard and they were in the right place at the right time, it happened. For you, that, that's real. You were just a regular person in a small town and didn't see how it was ever going to happen. And, but it happened. That's amazing. The first time I got paid actual money for writings, I, I was 32 years old, which, again, I, I, some people don't understand what I mean by that. I get a lot of messages from people who are they're like 25 and feel like they've made nothing of their life. Right. Mm. And it's like, <laughs> man, it's, uh, you know, like I consider myself, if I had gotten successful right out of school, 
the way I see some influencers, you know, or whatever, they're very, they're 19 and they already have 400,000 followers. I wouldn't have dealt with the success well at all. I think I would have wound up divorced. I would have wound up with probably addictions or something like I wouldn't have handled it. I needed to go out into the world and flounder, you know, doing office jobs and stuff for a decade. Right. And then when it came along, realize how rare it was. Because at that point, again, I knew I had a lot of aspiring author friends. I had many, many friends who had been trying to pitch a book or a screenplay for a decade and going nowhere with it. And knowing that it's rare when these opportunities come along. And and I think if it had happened right out of the gate, I would have had a mindset of, oh, this is just what the world is like. I clearly am amazing. You know, you come out, the world recognizes talent and anybody else who doesn't make it, it must be because they're not trying as hard as I am. Right. It's like, no, I was working like a dog that whole time and nobody cared. Like the last thing that happened before I got the job at Cracked was I didn't get a job at a UPS warehouse packing right. boxes onto trucks off the thing um, and couldn't even get an interview. I, I, I you know, at most places because my resume was just, again, all this temp office work. Right. It's like nobody, nobody was sending me, you know, stopping me in the street to tell me I had inspired them. I was just this guy. Uh, so when the success came along, I had a little bit more perspective of like, oh, this is this is all ephemeral. And then, you know, again, I'm not at Cracked anymore. They in 2017, in December of 2017, they they laid off everybody because right. once once Facebook Facebook turned off the traffic to the site and Google turned off the rest of the traffic to the site. All of that work, you know, again, this this crew of 40 some people that I, me and, and the editor in chief, Jack O'Brien, basically handpicked this crew. Like we talked these people into leaving their previous jobs and coming to work for Cracked. We had built up a name and a reputation where people wanted to come work for us. And so we had those that many full time employees and probably hundreds more contractors and thousands more freelancers. We had this whole army of creators we had brought under the tent and had told ourselves, we're such amazing writers, editors, that that's why we're successful. And then one day Facebook just says, no, we're going to change one line in the algorithm and all of the traffic you get from here will drop basically to, it'll drop by 95% or it's going to vanish. And that was that. The traffic went away and we were dead because when the traffic went away, the ad rates plummeted because advertisers need you to be at a certain threshold of traffic before they will do the big ad deals with you. All that mm -hmm. sponsored stuff went away, the money went away, and the company one day just called an all-hands meeting and at the meeting announced, um, all, all of you are have been let go except for they were leaving a skeleton crew of five people to try to keep it running. Everybody else was sent home, shut down the video team, shut down, they let go of everybody. They just, they, they closed the office. Um, and it was just a few people working from home. And then I stuck around for three more years to try to keep it alive and couldn't. Right. And so again, I found myself, you know, at age 45 and this thing that I had spent 13 years building, um, I just watched it be picked apart and killed right in front of me. Cause all those people who I had talked into leaving their old jobs to come to crack, they were all laid off with very little severance and they all lost their health insurance. And I, these people who I had convinced that, you know, it's gosh, we get to work with David Wong, it, you know, it, it, wow, this will be amazing. He, well, he, he's a genius. It's like, apparently not. Uh, Cause I didn't see this coming. And I, I could not figure out a way to make money doing what we were doing. 
And so everything I told myself about, you know, our writing, it's important. It means something to people. You know, I get the, I get their fan mail saying it changed their life and they come here every day. The moment the nature of content changed where they're viewing it on a phone, viewing it through their Facebook's built-in browser, the moment they started to prefer their long form content in the form of audio instead of text, it just disappeared like smoke. And that was that. So I'm now writing books full time. I am incredibly fortunate to be able to do it. Um, but I also have privilege. My wife has a good job. I get health insurance through her. If right. I had to pay health insurance out of pocket, it would be a huge bite out of my paycheck. I don't know that I would be able to do that. I would probably still have to find another day job. This is the number one place for macabre cults, classics, and horrors. For synopsis, reviews, and news, go to macabre.com. Thank you for listening. Signing out until the next one.